Welcome back to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast. We've read Chapter 8. Um, George's compliments, in air quotes, his compliments to Lady Gregory are so insulting. What a dickhead. I mean, we've established that he is a dickhead already. But, my God, like, just... He was really trying to compliment Lady Gregory on her output of plays but in every single compliment there was like a temper to that compliment you know like a he tempered it a little bit and it was just it just came across like you know obviously she's not up to any men men's standard but she's pretty good for a woman um you know she's obviously not a genius like men are but not bad um and that that's just how it came across to me Right, and the most frustrating thing is that, like, it's really boring to read these quote-unquote classic authors who were just trying to reach genius status. They were just trying to sort of prove that they were one of the greats, and their writing is so boring because of it, because it just comes across as, like, you could replace every single sentence in George's book with just, like, please compliment me. It's just him begging for compliments for, 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 you know, 50 hours straight. Every single sentence. If you just... I'll, the next chapter I read, I'll just go like this. Please compliment me. Please compliment me. Please compliment me. Please give me compliments. Me. Me. Look at me. Look at me. Me. This is a me party. How good am I? You know, that's it. And, and then pandering and kind of... Cl- what do they call it? Like clout, um, you know, clout chasing with all his famous friends, just trying to get a little bit of their clout. It is exhausting. And that's all it is. And then for an author to come in with a little bit of um, modesty and humility and just say, hey, I'm just here to write entertaining stuff that people like. Um, and there's, I feel like there is more wisdom in doing that than just trying to get people to say, oh, yeah, you are the greatest genius ever. Well done. Pat you on the back. It's like, that's not that satisfying for the recipient of that work of art, you know, the reader. It's just treating the reader like a little, I don't know, uh, prop for your ego. Whereas Lady Gregory is treating the reader with respect and trying to entertain them. And without trying to be like, hey, look at me, by the way, as well. And I feel like George just misses that completely and goes like, yeah, well, you know, they're not bad. She's obviously, you know, not a genius, but... And it's like, maybe she is, man. Maybe she's just not a dickhead like you. Um, so, yeah, just maybe the most frustrating chapter yet in the book, uh, just because of those subtle you know, the backhanded compliments. Yeah. Like, I didn't think I could dislike this gentleman anymore, but I just just really think he's just a distasteful fellow. Techrific says, I'm a bit behind, but catching up. Good on you, man. Godspeed to you. I can't wait to see the back of this book. Sheesh, what a grind this is. Battle on, and Thank you. And Swim says, Mama Fish, he says, Hi, all. Tomorrow we cross into Canada. A road trip is not conducive to reading a chapter a day. 
finished book two. Well done. Good job getting to the end of book two. And George is a pretentious twit. Well, yep, I hear you swim. Um, Road trip is not great for a chapter a day. The one thing you could do is download all the podcasts in advance. Although if you're reading this, I might maybe I'll type this as a comment because you're probably not going to hear this. But you could um, abandon the reading it yourself and just listen to me read it. I'm doing a bad reading, but it's better than nothing. Um, and on a road trip, you know, you can chuck your headphones in, put it on double speed, and you can be up to speed in a couple of hours. It's one uh, option. It's not exactly a good option, but if you wanted to stay in in step with the reading, I would do that. And the reason I recommend that is because today here, it's 25th of May, we have uh, 10 chapters left, I think, or 11. And we have six days left in the month, I think, or five. How many days in May? Well, I should know that by my age, shouldn't I? Um, there are six days left in this month. All right. Now, I am going to challenge myself to finish this book before June. That's 11 chapters in six days. Look, I don't think I'm going to achieve it, but that's my goal. I'm going to shoot for the stars. So I'm going to be trying to do more than one chapter per day. Look, who knows? I probably won't even up my speed at all because I, I say that ambitiously, but then once you're, you're an hour into a reading and you realize you've you know not even finished the, the chapter, it's like, well, am I really going to spend three hours reading today? Um, just to, you know, I don't know. Anyway, um, look, we're about a week away, let's say, from finishing the book. And if you're on a road trip for the next week, it's going to be a shame if you miss uh, the ending here. But I'm desperate to get this thing behind us, uh, as, is, uh, as we all are. So let's kick on. And let's keep reading. Let's read chapter 9 right now. But my... Th- this is chapter 9. It starts with the word but. But my thoughts have begun to wander from Singe to Lady Gregory and Yeats to all the criticism critics who have complained that in this book, instead of creating types of character like Easter Waters or Dick Lennox, I have wasted my time describing my friend's mere portrait painting. But what was not Dick Lennox Dick Maitland? And in writing Easter Waters, did I not think of one heroic woman? We all have models, and if we copy the model intelligently, a type emerges. In writing Patience, Gilbert thought he was copying Oscar Wilde, whereas he was drawing Wilde... Wi- he was drawing Willie Yeats out of the womb of fire, of time, sorry. And when Flaubert wrote Bouvard and Bouchet, he thought he was creating, but he was really performing the same kind offices of Plunkett and Gill, giving them names much more significant than the names they are known by in Ireland. Bouvard, is that the one we wrote? Madame Bovary, or whatever it's called. I don't know. Um, but he was really performing the same kind of blah, 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 giving them names such as more significant than the names they are known by in Ireland, but doing no more. A letter from Plunkett regretting that a broken leg prevented him from being present at the great dinner of the Shelbourne Hotel has been alluded to, and he was whirled rapidly before the reader's eyes as he repaired on an outside car to an agricultural meeting with Yeats, 
but no portrait of him has appeared, and the reader has not heard how we became acquainted. It was dear Edward who brought the meeting about, overriding Plunkett, who is a timid man and fears to meet anyone with a sense of humour. He dreads laughter as a cat dreads cold water, but Edward insisted, You are both public men and you cannot avoid knowing each other sooner or later, and now is the moment for you both to take the plunge. And one evening, at the end of a long summer's day, a lean man of medium height, courteous and dignified, clearly of the Protestant ascendancy, came forward through the dusk of a drawing room. The lamps had just been lighted to thank me for having accepted his invitation to dinner. I liked his well-designed oval face, his scanty beard and his eyes pleasantly grey and pleasantly perplexed. A long, straight, well-formed nose divided the face and a broad strip of forehead lay underneath the brown stubbly crop of hair that covered a small round skull. The arrival of a guest obliged him to turn away, but before doing so he shook hands with me a second time, and in this supplementary handshake it seemed to me that that... Something which is genuine in him had passed into his hand. What is in the mind transpires in the hand, and this is quite natural, and it is still more natural that what is not in the mind should not transpire in the hand. There is no grip in Gill's hand. One remembers its colour and its dangle, that is all, and his manner, though pleasing, is flimsy. Not that Plunkett's manners are hard, and disagreeable, on the contrary, they are rather soft and affable, but there is something pathetic in which in him which strikes one at first in the brow, in the grey eyes under it, and all over the flat face marked with a prominent nose, and in the hesitancy of his speech, which straggles with his beard, and his exclamation er er er, without which he cannot speak half a dozen words. So much did I see of Plunkett in the red twilight with glimpses through it of silken gowns, of shoulders and arms, of all effaced, a dim background. One felt on entering his room that his dinner was not a sexual one. Everybody seemed anxious to speak on what is known as serious subjects, but restrained himself out of deference to the gro- to the gowns, but as soon as sex had retired, cigars were lighted, important matters were on the verge of discussion. Plunkett was visibly relieved, and with brightened face he began to talk. He talked rapidly, he broke down, now he lost the thread and sought for it, er, 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 the uneconomic man in his economic holding, er, 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 is a danger to the state, and the economic man in his uneconomic holding, er, 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 is probably a greater danger, and to the relieve the producer of the cost of distribution is the object of the cooperative movement. It seemed to me that we could have discovered what he was saying in the sixpenny textbook, but Plunkett was so interested that it, it is not likely he perceived he was boring the company and me. So, just so... It's like rude. <laughs> it's like so disrespectful. The way this guy treats his acquaintances in this book. And that's actually, like, really disappointing. Um, Like, he's quoting his friend and putting in all the... St- like, artificially inserting, like, stutters and stumbles into the guy's sentences. 
I noticed that when he when whenever it's his dialogue, he omits any ums and ahs that he might have said at that time and place. But when it's his friend and he's trying to make him out to be a dickhead or a boring person, he he litters his friend's language with er 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 er, er. like why why don't you ever say um ah uh, er in any of your speak? Oh, that's because you filter yours to make yourself perfect. Although you know, in saying that. He's put a lot of very boring words into his own mouth in this book, so... I don't know. I just... This guy. He's just absolute... So, he's so... He, he so lacks self-awareness that it's just kind of irritating. Beyond irritating. It's not kind of irritating. It's extremely annoying. Plunkett, I said to myself is one of those men whose genius is in practical work and who, in order to obtain foundation for his work, seeks blindly for first principles. As soon as we get to practical work, he will talk quite differently, and I looked forward to questioning him on matters about which I had definite information, but as I was about to speak, a pallid parliamentarian, whose name I have forgotten, weary like myself of the economic man and the uneconomic holding, turned to me to get news of O'Brien, whose headquarters were in the county of Mayo, thinking that as I came from that part of the country, I should be able to tell him something regarding the chances of an anti-grazing movement. It so happened that I had had that morning a long talk with my agent about Mayo, and forgetful for the moment of my intention to question Plunkett about the egg industry, Overborne by a desire to escape from platitudes, I began to repeat all I had heard, saying I could vouch for the facts, my agent being an old friend on whose veracity and accuracy of observation I could depend. The parliamentarian leaned forward, anxious to get the truth from me, and whatever information might be picked up on the way, to pad his speeches for the next session, and perhaps what I was saying by force of contrast with Plunkett's generalities, attracted the attention of those present, and as they leaned forward, Interested to hear some facts, the humour of the situation began to tickle me. The absent O'Brien had become the centre of interest, and a cloud of melancholy appeared in Plunkett's face. His mechanical smile broke down. He seemed troubled and irritated. Then I thought it is really true that he delights in his talk of the economic man and the uneconomic holding, er, 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 and vice versa, and I began to doubt if nature in her endless discrepancies had really created such a discrepancy as I had imagined. A practical man unable to get to practical work before drinking platitudes from a sixpenny textbook. By this time my knowledge of O'Brien's movement was exhausted and I should have been pleased to change the subject, but the parliamentarian was insistent and had it not been for the intervention of Plunkett, I should not have been able to rid myself of him. But Plunkett, unable to endure a rivalry with O'Brien for another moment, turned to the pallid parliamentarian, saying that in two or three years his cooperative followers would be masters of all local assemblies, and he spoke in such a way as to lead the gentleman to understand that enough had been said about O'Brien. At last, my chance seemed to have come to get a word with Plunkett regarding the details of his scheme of the regeneration of Ireland. I was at that time interested in a cooperative egg society which had been started at Plunkett's instigation, 
by my brother, who had discovered after a little experience that more extended business arrangements were necessary if the profits were to cover the expenses. And knowing more of this matter than I did about O'Brien's anti-grazing movement, I moved up toward Plunkett, anxious to hear his opinion and to try and induce him to modify the measures he was taking for spreading these societies all over the country. At the mention of the blessed word cooperation, Plunkett's face brightened and he began to discuss the subject, but in general terms. More, it seemed to me, for the edification of the parliamentarian than for any practical purpose, as I knew from my brother all about the general theory and only wanted to study its application. I returned to the details again and again, going to figures, showing how the system could not be carried out exactly as Plunkett had dreamed of it, and having some experience about the conveying of eggs from Pulborough to London, they arrived nearly always broken. True that the South Coast Railway paid for the breakage without murmuring. All the same, it was annoying to have one's eggs broken. I tried to learn from him if more reliance could be placed upon Irish railways. One cannot discuss, I remember him saying, the fate of the individual egg. But Plunkett, your whole system rests on the individual egg, a fact which he could not contravene, and he so and so he became melancholy again. Nothing, I said to myself, bores him so much as detail. He loves dreaming, like every other Irishman, and he did not see each other for many a month until we met in Gill's rooms in Clare Street or in the offices of the Daily Express after the Boer War had driven me out of England. The Daily Express had been bought by Plunkett, or it had come into Plunkett's control, and Gill had been appointed editor, and feeling, I suppose, that it was necessary to redeem the Express from its sectarian tone, Gill dared one day to write of Dr. Walsh as the Archbishop of Dublin, causing a great uproar among the subscribers. An attack on the Great Southern Railway caused the withdrawal of a great advertisement, but nothing mattered so long as Plunkett and Gill succeeded in convincing Gerard, G- Gerald Belfour that what Ireland needed was a new State Department of Agriculture and Art. Like all dreamers, Plunkett is an inter- inveiling fellow and he unveiled Gerald Balfour, and Gerald Balfour unveiled his brother, and the brother unveiled his ministry, and at the end of all this unveiling was a great grant of 170000 a year to found a Department of Agriculture and Art in Ireland, but the unveiler had been unveiled. Gill's ambitious ambition stretched beyond mere agriculture. How art was gathered into the scheme, I don't know, probably as a mere make-weight. The mission of the Department of the Reformation of Ireland, and from end to end, the very task of that Flaubert's heroes, but... It would be well to tell my readers who were the heroes of this not very well-known book. Bouvard and Pécuchet were two little city clerks who became acquainted in a way that seemed marvellous to both of them. It was their want to seek a certain bench after dinner and to spend what remained of their dinner hour watching the passers-by. One day, they took off their hats to mop their brows. Bouvard looked into Pichette's. Pichette looked into Bouvard's. Both were amazed by the coincidence. They had gotten their hats from the same hatter. A great friendship arose out of this circumstance. The twain meeting every day, delighting more and more in each other's company, and the Bouvard inherits considerable wealth. He renounces his clerkship and invites Pécuchet to come to live with him. 
The first thing to do is to get a fine apartment, but life in a flat becomes monotonous. They much perforce do something to relieve the tedium of an unmeasured idleness. Market gardening strikes their imagination for a reason which I have forgotten. And having read the best books on the subject of vegetable growing, they buy some land, but only to discover after considerable loss of money that the vegetables grown by their neighbours, ignorant peasants, are far better than theirs and cheaper. It is 30 years since I read Bouvard and Picochet, but nobody forgets the story of the melon. Bouvard and Picochet had learned all the material facts about the growing of melons from books, but one would have thought that that was enough. But no. The melon is one of the most immoral of vegetables, It is, and if great care is may be not taken, it will contract incestuous alliances with uncles and aunts, sisters and brothers. The Boulevard and Becachet were not sufficiently concerned with the morals of their pet. They were content to watch it growing day after day, bigger and bigger. Exceeding the size of all melons, prodigious and gigantic, Brobdingnagian were the adjectives they murmured. At last the day came to cut the wonderful fruit. It was splendid on the table. It had all the qualities that a melon should have, all but one. It was uneatable. Bouvard spat his mouthful into the great Pechichet, spat his, I think, out of the window. Bouvard and Pechichet turned from agriculture to druidic remains, and Pechichet feels that his life would be incomplete without a love adventure. The serving maid seems to him suitable to his enterprise, and having assurances of her purity from her, emboldened he follows her into the woodshed. A painful disease is the strange ending of this romance, and as soon as Pecouchet is restored to health, the twain are inspired to write a tragedy, but having, to, having no knowledge of dramatic construction, they send to Paris for books on the subject, and in these books they read of the faults that the critics have discovered in Shakespeare and Moliere and Racine and other famous writers. And they resolve to avoid these faults. Pecachet wanders from tragedy to biblical criticism, and no one forgets the scene between him and Monsieur Lecure. Under a dripping umbrella, biblical criticism is succeeded by another folly, and then by another. I do not remember the book in detail, but the best established theories are always being overturned by the simplest fact. This great book was described as an extravaganza by the critics of the time, and it was said that Flaubert's admiration of human stupidity was so great that he piled absurdity upon absurdity, exceeding the modesty of nature, but nothing is so immodest as nature, and when she picked up the theme suggested by Flaubert and developed it, human stupidity gave forth flowers that would have delighted and saddened him, saddened him, for it is difficult to imagine him writing his book if he had lived to watch the department at the work, at work in Ireland. He would have turned away regretfully, saying, I have been anticipated. Plunkett and Gill have transferred my dreams into real life, and he would have admitted that some of their experiments equaled those that he had in mind. For instance, the calf that the department sent to the Cork exhibition as an example of the new method of rearing calves. What is this guy on about? What am I even reading right now? It's just drivel. Bavard and Pecachet, we will drop the plunket and gill, invited all the monster farmers to view the animal, and they had been impressed by its appearance, a fine, happy beast it seemed to be, but very soon it began to droop, causing a good deal of anxiety, and the news of its death was brought one evening to the Imperial Hotel where Bavard and Pecachet were lodging. After a hurried consultation, Pecachet looked at his watch. We have several hours before us to find a similar calf, but Pecachet, do you think that we are justified er, 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 in replacing a dead calf by a healthy one? 
At this question, Pekashe flamed a little. The honour of the department is at stake. He said, we must think of the department. The department is judged by its results. Again, a light flamed into Pekashe's eyes, and though he did not say it, it was clear that he looked upon the department as something existing of and through itself, which could not be judged by its mere works. There has been some foul play. Our enemies, he muttered, and sent a telegram to the expert of the department to come down at once. A post-mortem was ordered, but no new facts was discovered, and the advice of the vet was that the new method should be abandoned and the second calf he fed upon milk and in linseed meal, and upon this natural diet it prospered exceedingly. Bouvard and Pekashe experiments were not limited to teaching the finest herdsmen in the world how to raise cattle. It was necessary that they should spread themselves over the entire range of human activities in order to get rid of the 170000 a year that the department was receiving from the state. A good many hundred pounds were lost in a shoe factory in Belena, and what are a few hundred pounds when one is dealing with 170000 a year? And there were moments of sad perplexity in the lives of our reformers. A gleam came into Pekashe's eyes. Have you thought of anything, said Bouvard? And Pekashe answered that it had just occurred to him it would be a great advantage to Ireland to, and to the department if a method could be discovered of turning peat into coal. These experiments will be costly, Pekashe. How much do you think we can spend? Pekishay was full of hope, but the factory turned out so complete and sudden a failure that it had to be closed at once. Oyster beds were laid in Galway and given in charge of a young man who had read all that they that, that had ever been written on the subject of oyster culture. The colonel told me that he had met him at a tennis party and the charming young man, who was a great social advantage to the neighbourhood, explained that the colonel to the colonel that Portuguese oysters could only live three or five, four days in the creek. White stables could endure our waters a little longer. The French oyster, he said, is the shortest lived of all. I thought, said the colonel, that the object of the department was to cultivate rather than to destroy oysters. We are only experimenting. We must have facts, he answered. And next day, on their way to the creek, the colonel said there must be a drain hereabouts, and pointing to one flowing over the oyster beds, he added... I think this accounts for a great deal of the mortality in which you are experimenting. A gloom came into the young man's face and he promised to write up a report for the department. I think it was the Finnish fishing interests of Galway that next attracted the attention of Bouvard and Pekashe. The fishermen were in sad need of the piers and the department undertook the construction of some two or three, but a very few spring tides cast them hither and thither. Some of them can still be reached at low tide. Some show a few rocks out in the bay and these are much appreciated by gannets in the breeding season. Bouvard felt the disappearance of the peers deeply, and so did Peck Couchet, who, by, but they found consolation in the thought that experimentation is the source of all knowledge. And one day Bouvard said to Peck Couchet, Our staff is miserably underpaid. You are quite right, Bouvard. You are a rich man and can do without a salary. But for the honour of the department, it seems to me, that I should be placed on a level with the Undersecretary. We must never forget that ours is a great State Department. And the twain fell to thinking how some more money might be expended for the good of Ireland. The establishment of a bacon factory was considered, and the advantage lectures on the minding of pigs would be to the inhabitants of the west of Ireland, the egg and the poultry industry might be greatly benefited by a little knowledge. Lectures were sought and found, and they departed to instruct 
and capons were imported from Surrey to improve the strains, and there was great lamentation at the end of the hatching season. Some wonderful letters reached the department, strangely worded letters from which I have room for only one sentence. Sora Cock was among the cocks you sent us. Pecuchet rang the bell, but the poultry expert was out at the time, and the deputation was waiting in the ante-room. After listening to all the evidence on the subject of cooking, he agreed that the culinary utensils at the disposal of the peasant were antiquated, and it was arranged that ladies should be sent out. One arrived at Berlin Robe, and the peasants learned from her how to make meringues, but meringues were a little beyond the reach of the peasants' bill of fare, and after a long correspondence with the department, the lecturers were ordered to substitute macaroni or gratin, and I remember a girl coming back from Ballon Robe bringing the dish with her, and her enthusiasm about it was the same as Bouvard's and Picochet's over the melon, and its success was the same as the melon's. One of the family spat it into the grate, another spat it into the window. The department had forgotten that Catholics do not like cheese. Catholics do not like cheese. Well, okay. Undeterred by such incidents as these, the wheels of the department grind on and on, reproducing all the events of Flaubert's book in every detail, but sooner or later, nature outstrips the human imagination, and Flaubert would have thrown up his arms in insignificant gesture if he were alive to hear the story of how Bavard and Percochet decided one day to improve the breed of asses in Ireland. This ass is an animal much used in Ireland by the peasant. Bouvard began, Pasha acquiesced, and during the course of the evening it was agreed that it would be a great advantage to the country if the Irish arse were improved. Books on the subject of the arse were sent for to London, and it was discovered that the Spanish asses were the finest of all, and the Bouvards said to Pichette, we must import sires. Pichette hesitated and with his usual instinct for compromise, suggested Shetland ponies. Bouvard was of the opinion that the Shetland pony was too small for the friendly arse, but Pichette said that there were in Kerry asses of a sufficient size and a breed of small mules would be a great use in the mountainy districts. Bouvard pointed out that mules were sterile. Peshaw referred Bevera to the reminiscences of a veterinary surgeon and he read in this book that mules had been seen with foals. There was no case, however, of these foals having bred in their turn, so the mule must be said to be sterile in the second generation. For certain, the mule is moreover a vicious animal. And Bouvard passed the book back to Perchette and for one reason or another it was decided that the department would be well advised to leave the mule alone and direct all its attention to the improvement of the ass. What do you think, Pekashet, of the Scotch ass? Our importations from Scotland have been considerable lately. You would like something continental, Boucher. The Spanish ass you will see is highly recommended, and the sires are expensive. £200 are paid for the tall ass, standing over 14 hands high, and able to cover a 16 hands mare, and we should have to import at least 50 sires to affect visibility the Irish strain. You see, that would be £10,000, and we could hardly risk so large an outlay. You will notice that the Egyptian ass is described as being smaller than the Spanish, altogether a lighter animal, and we could buy Egyptian size for a hundred apiece. They run from 75 to 100 pounds. We might get them cheaper still by taking a large number of asses. 
Pekaje was in favour of the small commission and that would take evidence regarding not only the Egyptian but the Barbary and the Arabian ass. But this commission, Purvard pointed out, would be a delay and an expense and an order was sent to Alexandria to purchase asses. The Department of Agriculture in Ireland was anxious to buy sire asses, sure foal getters, and the selection was confided to whom? The archives of the department would have to be searched for the name of the agent a useless labour for no blame attaches to him. His selection was approved by everybody, and the herd was much admired as it trotted and canted through the morning sunlight on the way to the docks. Beautiful little animals, alert as flies, shaking their ears and whisking their long, well-furnished tails, a sight to behold, as docile as they were beautiful, until they reached the gangway, but as soon as they were asked to step on board, every one was equally determined to stay in his own country, and much pressure had been used, and some accidents happened, but human energy prevailed, and the asses were all shipped in the end, and it was thought that no untoward incident could happen, so admirable were the arrangements for their reception. Every ass had a stall to himself, and to make sure that there would be no mutual biting and kicking, each one was barred in his stall, and that it was this very bar that proved the undoing of Bouvard and Pechachet's great experiment. The temper of the asses had already been tried, and they were not roused to such stubbornness by the bar that they preferred to die rather than to stale without stretching themselves, and when the steamer put into Malta only seven were able to proceed down the gangway. The telegram that brought the news of the loss of ten asses, said Bouvard and Peche, pondering seasickness, I suppose, said Pecochet. It may have been homesickness, Bouvard replied, but be that as it may, the seven must be landed in Marseille, and a telegram with these instructions was sent to Malta. It reached there in time, but the boat was delayed by the breaking of a screw, and the grooms, unsuspicious of the reluctance of the arse to stale, again dropped the bars on their hind quarters, with the result that one after another those grand asses burst their bladders. Only one arriving in Marseille, a forlorn and decrepit scarecrow ass that would not as much as look at the pretty white and black and brown asses that had come up from Kerry. He chased them with bad teeth out of his field. Pecochet thought that a chestnut ass might tempt him, but the colour is rare among asses, and after a long search the task of finding one was given up as hopeless, the expert declaring that it was doubtful if even a chestnut ass would revive any of the fervour of the old Nile in him, a gaunt, taciturn, solitary animal that moved away from human and ass kind, a vicious, unkempt brute that had once turned on Pecochet, but had he had sat on the fence in time, a silent animal by day, a noisy at midnight, when Bouvard sat considering his book for Ireland, one on the table by his side lay the different methods of farmers famous authors. And learning from it that Byron wrote late at night and drank soda water, Bavard determined that he too would sit up late and drink soda water, but strange to relate, though his health declined, his book did not progress. His mind was teeming with ideas, but he found it very difficult to disentangle them, and adopted a new method of work. Balzac used to go to sleep early in the evening and wake up at twelve and write all night and all day, drinking black coffee, but a very few days proved to Bavard that his health was not equal to the strain, and he resolved to adopt another method. It was also stated 
in the different methods of great authors that Dumas was often glad to call in a collaborator, and this seemed an excellent idea for what concerned Bouvard were not his rhythms but his ideas. Others could not put his ideas into rhythms, and the help of all kinds of people were evoked. We used to hear a great deal about Bond, a German economist, and Coyne, a gentleman engaged in the department, was entrusted with the task of gathering statistics. Memoranda of all kinds were piled up. A commission sent to Denmark to report on the working of Danish dairies came back with the information that the dairies of Denmark were kept remarkably clean. The commission was accompanied by a priest, and he returned much shocked, as well he might be, for he had found no organised religion whatever in Denmark. One day a chapter was sent around, and everybody was asked to mark what he thought would should be omitted, and to add what he thought should be included. Dear Edward did not think that Bouvard had gone far enough in his praise of the Gaelic. And Pecuchet, whom we met going out to luncheon, declined to give any opinion on the subject of Bouvard's book. I will not speak on the subject, then I said to myself, there is a subject on which Pecuchet is not willing to advise, and with interest heightening I listened to Pecuchet. I've told Bouvard, he said, that he cannot be at once the saviour and the critic of the Irish society. If you must write a book, Bouvard, I have said, write what your own eyes have seen and your ears have heard. It would be better if he didn't write the book at all, he added, but if he must write one, let him write a book out of himself. But if he persists in his philosophy, he will harm the department. Pecachet threw up his arms, and I said to Edward, there is a certain good fellowship in Pecachet. He would save his old power from his vanity, the vanity of a book which he hopes will prove him to be far-seeing, i.e. the deep thinker, the brooding sage of Fox Rock. And so long as breath remains in my body, I will avouch that Pecuchet was firm in his determination not to have anything to do with Bouvard's book. He threw up his hands when I came to him with the news that Bouvard had tried tired of coffee, and unseemly hours, and had sent his manuscript to Rolleston, who had turned up his shirt sleeves and thrown it into a tub, and had sent it home, carefully starched and ironed. The book got a good many reviews. The fool's hour it was, for the Catholic cult let a great screech out of him, and demanded that the Redeemer should be put in the pillory. My friend John Redmond will set up a nationalist candidate against him for South Dublin, he will be beaten at the polls, wailed Pekishtay. And very soon after the defeat predicted by Pekishtay, the Nationalist members began to remind the government that Bouvard remained at the head of the department, though it had always been understood that the vice president of the department should be a member of the House of Commons. The Nationalists yelped singly and in the concert, and so loud grew the pack that Pekishtay could restrain Bouvard no longer, and he went down to Galloway to try his luck. A nice kind of luck he'll meet there, Pekishtay said, and when Bouvard returned from Galloway, crestfallen, Pekishtay determined to speak out. He was not unmindful of past favours, but the kindest thing he could do would be to remind Bouvard that his clinging to office was undignified. Not only undignified, he said to me one day, but a very selfish course, which I never should have suspected. Our common child is the department, he muttered savagely in his beard as we leaned over Baggett Street Bridge, and as the boat rose up in the lock, he added, and he has not thought for it, only for himself. The words, an unworthy parent, rose up in my mind, but I repressed them and applied myself to encouraging Pekashe to unfold his soul to me. So long as the department, he said, is represented in Parliament, it takes its place with the Admiralty, the Foreign Office, and the other departments of state, but unrepresented in Parliament, it sinks at once. I understand. It sinks to the level of the Board of Charitable Bequests and the Intermediate Board. 
or to any of the Irish boards on which it was your wont to pour your wrath when you were a nationalist and a plan of campaigner. Our joint efforts created the department, and if he were to retire now like a man instead of clinging on and embarrassing the government, he so he is embarrassing the government, I interjected, but without noticing my interruption, Picochet continued, if he were to retire, I say, like a man, the Liberal government and the Conservative government and any government worthy of its name would seize the first opportunity to pick Bouvard out of the distinguished Irishman who, irrespective of the party or the creed, should be allowed to serve his country. It seemed rather shabby if Picochet around like this on his old pal. But not feeling sure that I should act any better in the circumstances, I said, the government asked Bouvard to stay on. And it was to oblige the government, but the government did not promise to keep him on indefinitely. If it did, the department, as you have said yourself, would sink to the level of the board of charitable bequests. He would resign and not wait to be kicked out. But he is engaged on a pamphlet on the economic man and the uneconomic holding and the uneconomic man and the economic holding and the convinced that his work should be published during his presidency. He sits up till four in the morning. He has reverted to the Balzac method. Why doesn't he send for Ralston? If not for Ralston, why not Hanson? If not Hanson, why not Father Finlay? If not Father Finlay, why not Bond? Bond is in Munich, I answered. Weeks and months went by and we were never sure that the morrow would not see Bavard flung out of Marion Street. He did not behave with much dignity during these months, complaining on every occasion and to everybody he met that the government was treating him very badly and darkly hinting that the Roosevelt had asked him to go to America and apply his system to the United States and that if the government were to go much further he might be induced to accept Roosevelt's offer. But the Roosevelt intrigue Though it found much support in the homestead, failed to impress anybody, and suddenly it began to be rumoured that Boulevard was locking himself in, and we were disappointed when about two o'clock the newsboys were shouting resignation of Mr. Boulevard, and we all began to wonder why, who would take his place in Marion Street, a beautiful street that had been brought up in the department, and it was about to be pulled down to make way for public offices, and mayhap the destruction of Marion Street was Bouvard's real claim to immortality. In Flaubert's book, Bouvard and Perchette became copying clerks again, but nature was not satisfied with this end. She divided our Bouvard from our Pugchette. Bouvard returned to the homestead, dejected, overwhelmed, outcast, believing his spirits to be irreparably broken, but he found consolation in A.E.'s hope-inspiring eyes, in Anderson's manliness and courage, fortitude and perseverance, and the prodigal was led to the chair. Far happier, said Anderson, than the miserable Pecochet, who never will get free from the toothed wheel of the great state machine that has caught him up. Round and round he will go like a rabbit in the wheel of a bicycle. A.E. looked at Anderson, who had never used an image before, and he took up the strain. You have come back, he said, to a particular and definite purpose, to individual effort, to economics, Bouvard raised his eyes. We have not been idle, Anderson said. Progress has been made, and he picked up a map from the table and pointed to five and twenty more creameries. The cooperative movement, A.E. said, has continued. The farmers are with us. That is good, said Bouvard. Whereas with all the, its thousands, the department is affecting nothing. A cloud came into Bouvard's face, for he hoped one day to return to the department and seeing, though, through that cloud, A.E. said, No, Bouvard, no, never hope to return again to that dreadful place where all is vain tumult and salary. I hear, said Anderson, that Pecochet is making arrangements to bring the School of Art under the management of the department. He believes that by coordination, I've heard nothing else but coordination since I left you, it has been dinned into my ears, night, noon, and morning, how one must delegate all detail to subordinates, and then how by the powers of coordination. Yes, Anderson added, the man who is to take your place comes with a system of reafforestation of Ireland, and Picochet agrees with him that by compromise... The last we heard 
of Pekachet, A.E. said, was from George Moore, who met him at the Continental Hotel in Paris one bright May morning. Pekachet took him for a drive, telling him that he had an appointment with the Minister of Agriculture. The appointment, however, was missed that morning, or perhaps it was delegated to the following morning. Be that as it may, George Moore describes how they went for a drive together, stopping at all the bookshops, Pekachet springing out and coming back with parcels of books all relating to horse breeding. He has spoken to me about the Normandy sires and the Bouvard. George Moore said he was after Normandy sires and went chantly to view them next day, and it seemed to Bouvard's face that he could hear the braying of vicious scarecrow's ass that awaited him on his return to Fox Rock. And that's, that's just unacceptable. No one, nothing, nothing. Just drivel. See you tomorrow.